0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. We interrupt your scheduled program with this breaking announcement. VoiceOver artist Moxie Labouche is offering 10 small businesses a free VoiceOver. No cost involved, even if you get background music on it. This can be a phone menu, an explainer video, a YouTube video a social media ad, almost anything under the umbrella of corporate voiceover. Email contact at moxilabouche.com to order your free voiceover today. Contact at moxilabouche.com. The tiny, mouse-sized pygmy Tarsier is a nocturnal primate native to Indonesia. They're not monkeys, but prosimians like leaders and slow lorises. They have big eyes like a furby, but they're only about four inches long, and most of that is tail. Precious little was known about them, as they were believed to have gone extinct in the early 20th century. Then, in the year 2000, a scientist found one, in a rat trap, very much dead. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Welcome to part two of two about endlings, the last of their kind. It's going to be a little bit sad, but I promise, not a complete downer throughout. I wouldn't do that to you. If you're the kind of person who prefers to call werewolves lycanthropes, then you, like me, hear the name Tasmanian tiger and immediately correct it, in your head or out loud, to thylacine. The thylacine was native to the islands of Tasmania, obviously, since it's the Tasmanian tiger, as well as New Guinea and the Australian mainland, where it had been evolving away happily for 2 million years or so. It's called the Tasmanian tiger because it had a stripy lower back, though the less used name, Tasmanian wolf, is at least as appropriate because of its canine-like characteristics. They were the largest known carnivorous marsupials in the world, about two feet tall, weighing 60 pounds or 27 kilos, the size of a dog who's not quite big enough to be a big dog by my standards, but still too big to get on many apartment leases. The thylacine was a nocturnal hunter, though scientists debate what its primary food source was, if it went after lots of tiny creatures like the Antichinus, or a few larger creatures like wombats. Bonus fact, The male Antichinus mouse is so utterly dedicated to mating during the mating season that he'll go at it for 12 hours straight, for consecutive days on end, not bothering with paltry distractions like food, water, or sleep, until he actually mates himself to death. But back to the thylacine. The thylacine is one of only two marsupials known to have a pouch for both sexes. The other species, which is still with us, is the water possum from Central and South America. The pouch of the male thylacine served as a protective sheath for their genitals, making them sort of internal external genitals. Roughly 2,000 years ago, the pouched predator began to disappear from Papua New Guinea and Australia, perhaps due to competition from the dingo. The dingo is considered to be the first introduced species in Oceania, though no one's quite sure who introduced them. Among the frontrunners are Indian mariners who may have traveled to Australia, the seafaring Lapita people who spread eastward into the Pacific from East Asia, or traders from Timor and Taiwan who sailed through Southeast Asia. The dingo began out-competing the thylacine centuries before European settlement, at which point there were around 5,000 of them left. Things got markedly worse for the tigers in Tasmania after sheep were introduced in 1824. The European settlers took a dim view to native animals eating the livestock they'd introduced into the predators' environment. Within a few years, cash bounties were offered to encourage people to hunt them, despite contemporary evidence that stray dogs and poor ranch management were killing most of the sheep. Nope, gotta be these animals we didn't ask for. Add to the bounty hunting the combo punch of extensive habitat destruction and invasive diseases like mange, and the population diminished rapidly. The last living thylacine was captured in the wild in 1933, before being taken to the Bomara Sioux, also known as the Hobart Zoo, the remains of which you can skulk through today if you're into urban exploring and don't mind the risk of being arrested for trespassing. Workers at the zoo named the Tasmanian tiger Benjamin. You might actually have seen footage or still images of Benjamin. If not, there's a link in the show notes. More footage has been found in recent years, in which Arthur Reed, then owner of the zoo, literally rattles Benjamin's cage, presumably to try to get him to do something for the camera. Reed would die later that year, and the zoo changed ownership. Whether down to the new owner's inexperience or just random negligence, one freezing cold night in 1936, Benjamin was left locked out of his shelter, forcing him to sleep on the concrete slab, and he died that night of exposure. The local paper, The Mercury, said at the time that the thylacine had been in splendid health and condition, but unfortunately contracted a chill during the recent spell of cold weather. Yeah, I guess that's one way to put it. To make the matter sadder, like a death row call from the governor coming too late, the thylacine had been given government protection two months earlier. Fat lot of good it did him, though. The zoo that failed to provide basic care for what they thought slash knew at the time to be the last of its species, posted ads offering to pay trappers for a new thylacine, and the government circulated questionnaires to help people identify any sightings of the animal. But none ever turned up. No confirmed thylacine sightings have been recorded in the 90-odd years since Benjamin's unceremonious demise despite extensive searches and hefty rewards offered for convincing evidence. The species was declared officially extinct in 1982, but the Australian government has revised that timeline to mark the thylacine as having gone extinct in 36 when Benjamin died. Some people do hold out hope, though. Reports come in every now and then of people in the bush who think they saw a Tassie tiger but no evidence could be turned up to substantiate them. That's okay by Nick Mooney, a thylacine expert, who says, If they are out there, I hope we never find them, because we are even greedier now. Although extinction is a natural phenomenon, it occurs at a natural background rate of about 1 to 5 species per year. Scientists estimate we're now losing 1 to 10 Thousand times the background rate, literally dozens of species going extinct every day from habitat destruction, exploitation, and climate change. Sometimes, though, we really excel ourselves. Take, for example, the passenger pigeon, possibly the most abundant bird on Earth. Early 19th century estimates put their population somewhere between three and five billion with a B individuals about a third of today's total North American bird population. Records in the 1830s tell of passing flocks that darkened the sky for days at a time. They nested in trees in such great numbers that their weight would break off all the branches. There were contests to see who could shoot as many of them as possible in a certain period of time, with one winner shooting 30,000 birds in one contest. By 1900, there were zero left in the wild. The last captive specimen, a pigeon called Martha in the Cincinnati Zoo, died alone in 1941. The history of the passenger pigeon can teach us a lot about how and why species become extinct. Spoiler alert for the why, it's often us. Native Americans relied on passenger pigeons for food, as the European settlers would, But by and large, they had learned to harvest the species in a sustainable way. It was common in parts of North America to eat only the young pigeons that were hunted at night, since this didn't seem to scare away the adult birds and prevent them from re-nesting and reproducing. But around the year 1500, a more aggressive variant of human came to the continent. Were Europeans to blame for the passenger pigeon's extinction? Not entirely though still mostly. A 2014 study published in the scientific journal PNAS strongly suggests that humans were just the final straw in destroying a species that was already vulnerable and headed for trouble. The researchers asserted that despite their once enormous numbers, the passenger pigeon, whose population figures could vary widely, were already in danger. Studies of the genetic variation of the species using an investigative method called PSMC formed the background of this theory. The PSMC, or Pairwise Sequentially Markovian Coalescent Method, don't ask me what that means, can use the information in the genes of a single individual of a species to map the history of the species. You should therefore be able to see how the species developed over many generations, and estimate how many individuals there were at any given time, all based on a single genome. Using this method, researchers found that the number of passenger pigeons was in free fall even before the arrival of Europeans. Although the species might not have gone extinct, left alone, it would have shrunk dramatically, maybe to only a few hundred thousand individuals it sounds almost too good to be true that you can come up with something so definitive based on information from just one or a few individuals. And in this case, it is. At least if we believe a newer study published in the journal Science. That study claims the PSMC method can't be used on passenger pigeons. This study's research provides completely different results. The PSMC is based on the assumption that genetic variation occurs relatively evenly all along the chromosomes that constitute a genome. In passenger pigeons, most of the genetic diversity was found at the ends of the chromosome. The middle of the chromosome showed little variation from one generation to the next as a result of the selection on those genes. The researchers behind the article in Science didn't use the PSMC method but instead used mitochondrial DNA from 41 passenger pigeon remains as their starting point. Science nerds and true crime buffs will know that mitochondrial DNA is passed down from the mother, from her mother, from her mother, and so on, and don't contain any DNA from any fathers. The variation in mitochondrial DNA also occurs due to mutations and happen relatively consistently over time. The study in science analyzed the entire genomes from four passenger pigeons and compared these with two genomes from band-tailed pigeons, one of their closest extant relatives. The final result was that the new study ended up with completely different answers about the passenger pigeon and how they met their demise. Scientists previously believed that the larger the population of a species, the more genetically diverse it would be, But this proved not to be true with passenger pigeons. According to the article in Science, the large population size appeared to have enabled passenger pigeons to adapt and evolve more quickly. The fact that beneficial mutations became incredibly dominant very quickly led to the disappearance of genetic variants. This in turn led to the genetic diversity in the passenger pigeon being surprisingly low in relation to their numbers. This may have made the species more vulnerable to changes in their environment. The same fate befell the large grasshopper Melanoplus spretus in the western United States. It went from a population of several trillion to zero in just a few decades, possibly from farmers destroying its breeding grounds and the grasshopper being unable to adapt. While a lack of genetic diversity made the passenger pigeon susceptible to changes, it was still humans ultimately that did it in. People ate passenger pigeon in huge amounts, but they were also killed because they were perceived as a threat to agriculture, sort of foreshadowing of Mao and the sparrows. As Europeans migrated across North America, they thinned out or eliminated the large oak forests that the pigeons depended on for their primary food source, acorns. The advent of the locomotive engine was a boon to the commercial pigeon hunter because it meant big barrels of little birds could be loaded up and shipped to other cities. The pigeons were probably dependent on a large flock size to reproduce. Their instincts didn't work when only a few individuals were scattered hither and yon. As the species was already dying out, 250,000 birds, the last big flock, were shot in a single day in 1896. That same year, the last wild passenger pigeon was observed in Louisiana, and then shot. Shooting the last of something is sadly not rare in the annals of animals that aren't here anymore. The culprit here is less the hunter than it is his boss a private collector, or even a scientific institution. History is littered with the stuffed and mounted carcasses of animals that were the last of their kind, bagged by overzealous collectors who didn't stop to consider the cost of the kill. In collecting's heyday, bagging a rare specimen was a point of pride for naturalists, and wealthy wildlife lovers amassed taxidermied animals the way other people might accumulate art. Famous scientists like Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace collected and preserved hundreds, thousands, even tens of thousands of specimens, most of which served a vital role in making new species known to science. But collectors who traveled to the world's most remote regions in search of as-yet-unknown animals also had an Indiana Jones-like swagger. Competition to find something first was fierce and institutions vying for new and exotic specimens, meant that dozens of researchers and hunters would go tramping up mountains and into jungles, all looking to kill the same animal. Among the most famous victims of this practice was the great auk, a now extinct North Atlantic bird with a tuxedo-like plumage and ungainly wattle. Its population had been decimated by demands for its down feathers. The auk was already teetering precariously when naturalists and museums took an interest in it in the 19th century. The centuries-long cool spell in the northern hemisphere known as the Little Ice Age had decimated their population. Humans came in to finish the job. The birds stood nearly three feet tall and sported thick plumage, making them a valuable food source and even more valuable commercial product. Adding insult to injury, its clumsiness on land and inability to fly made it a pretty easy target. Paradoxically, it was the great ox's sudden rarity that made scientists so eager to kill them. According to the Smithsonian, the great Ox classification as endangered in 1775 led to increased demand for specimens. A single bird could be sold for upwards of $16 in the early 1800s, a full year's wages for the average person. No longer hunted for its meat and down, the great auk and its eggs became a target for their scientific value. On July 3, 1844, a group of fishermen caught two auks on a remote island off the Icelandic coast. The fishermen strangled the birds to kill them while doing minimal damage to the body, and didn't even eat the eggs, just crushed them. I could have at least respected an omelette, you know?" The carcasses were then sold to a chemist in Reykjavik, who stuffed and mounted the birds and preserved their eyes and internal organs in jars of alcohol. And no one on record has seen a great auk since. The great auk was actually the logo for something I did in elementary school in fifth grade called the Knowledge Master Open. It was a kind of battle of the brains tournaments for the little kids, I suppose. We were eliminated in the first round, dead as a dodo. The dodo, of course, being the poster child for extinction, probably because we effectively lost them twice. How was that for a segue, huh? Now, most people are familiar with the sad story of the dodo. This plump, flightless bird was so tasty and so relatively tame that it was hunted to extinction within a century by Dutch sailors arriving on the Isle of Mauritius in the Indian Ocean. Fewer people realize, though, that the story is mostly false. Were these flightless birds tasty? Probably not, since the waste pits of the early Mauritian settlements are filled with animal bones from Dutch dinner tables, but there's nary a dodo bone amongst them. Dodos also weren't as plump as you see in illustrations. The pictures our pictures are based on were probably made of overfed captive birds, or poorly taxidermied specimens. In the wild, the dodo was a much leaner bird. Were they hunted to extinction? Unlikely. Mauritius was blanketed in thick, impenetrable rainforest, and dodos deep in the heartland would have been well beyond the reach of even the most committed hunter. How can such an icon of human-induced extinction be so misunderstood? The answer lies in the shameful way the dodo was treated after the last bird died, about 350 years ago. We have this continuous series of tragedies, forgetting the dodo over and over again, says Leon Clayson of the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. But perhaps no longer. Because of the work of Clausen's and his colleagues, including Julia Hume at London's Natural History Museum and Kenneth Unpronounceable from the University of Amsterdam, science is finally giving the dodo the attention it deserves. Tracing the dodo's evolutionary process is tricky business due to the island's acidic soil and humid tropical climates, which combine into an environment not conducive for the formation of fossils. All we can say for sure is that the dodo evolved at some point in the past 8 million years. How's that for a margin of error? Simply because it was 8 million years ago that Mauritius, a volcanic island rather like Hawaii, First rose above the waves. Of course, the dodo's extinction is sadly easier to pin down than its origins. Dutch sailors probably first encountered the bird in 1598, but the sailors themselves didn't make much of a contribution to the dodo's extinction, says Clausens. At most, there were a few hundred people living in a coastal settlement. The problem was more likely ship rats and the other animals that the sailors brought with them. Which spread across the island, eating dodo eggs and out competing native animals for food. The last confirmed sighting came in the 1660s. The living dodo was lost forever, but specimens of this strange bird had already been sent to Europe for scientific study. In several museums and university collections, skeletons and stuffed dodos survived, as it were. Unfortunately, Europe's 17th century scientists didn't realize quite how valuable their dodo specimens were. The problem was that the dodo had disappeared at the wrong time. Its extinction came well before a time when scientists would accept that an entire species could vanish forever. The great paleontologist Georges Cuvier is widely credited with alerting the scientific world to the reality of extinction. But he didn't do so until 1796. And when people hear about a concept like that, not understanding extinction, does anybody else think of that one episode from the uh, Jim Henson show Dinosaurs, which was the best? Just me. Okay. Well, if anybody else did, feel free to shout out on the social media. We'll have our own little club there. Facebook and Instagram.com, YourBrainOnFacts, Twitter, Brain on Facts Pod, and, of course, you can hang out with your fellow brainiacs in the Facebook group and the subreddit, both of which are easy to reach at YourBrainOnFacts.com slash social. You can always support Patreon.com slash YourBrainOnFacts like our newest members, David N., Brooklyn B., Sebastian, Kathy, Rachel, and Michael. In addition to special merch and the ability to vote on upcoming topics— Supporters also get ad-free versions of the episode as far in advance as I can actually get it done. So this meant that 17th and 18th century museum curators felt confident there must be more dodos out there somewhere to replace any specimens that became damaged or were discarded. Specimen damage and loss was rampant, especially at a time when taxidermy was still, we'll call it, unrefined and museum records were, at best, relatively crude. There used to be a complete dodo at Oxford, but they discarded the majority of the specimen in the 1700s. They kept just the head and one foot. The British Museum also had a dodo foot, but they, Plum, lost track of it about 100 years ago. There is also a dodo skull in Copenhagen and part of a beak in Prague. And that's about it. The dodo might have fallen into obscurity forever if not for the work of two Victorian researchers, Hugh Edwin Strickland and Alexander Gordon Melville. Normally, if you have three names, I assume you're a serial killer. In 1848, they published a monograph, the Dodo and its Kindred. Inadvertently, Strickland and Melville had kick-started a wave of dodo mania, which arguably reached its peak when the bird was featured in Lewis Carroll’s Alice’s Adventures in Wonderland, which I would argue did more to help us remember the dodo than any scientific efforts. Have you gotten your copy of the game Love Letter from Z-Man Games yet? My husband and I have played it at least five times in the last week, and I'm probably going to play it again tonight. It's a fun card strategy game where you're trying to get your letter of intent to the princess, and you have to carefully choose who you're going to have help you with that task. An average game lasts about 20 minutes, so it's real easy to squeeze one in. I've been enjoying it particularly because the small number of cards means I have a realistic chance of actually figuring out what my husband is holding. I don't get that in a lot of card-based games. It comes in a beautiful red velvet bag, and don't you just love little velvet bags? Small enough to take with you anywhere, marked for children 10 and up, but, you know, I'd let a really clever 8-year-old play it. Plus, Love Letter costs less than two drive-through value meals. You can get your copy of Love Letter from Zman.com, your local Target, or, and I underscore this one, your local game store, brick-and-mortar mom-and-pop shop. You really need to have a copy of Love Letter from Zman Games. Here on Your Brain on Facts, I may not have all the answers, but if your question is how can I find a sponsor for my small podcast, I do have the only answer you need, Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace that connects podcasters and businesses, many of them small businesses, to create ad campaigns that work for both parties. This is not a situation where you're going to have to have 25,000 downloads per episode before anyone will even look at you. Podcorn is easy to use, free to set up, you retain all of the rights to your podcast and everything else, and you get to tailor the ad campaign in a way that works for you and the sponsor, whether it's a host-read ad or an interview. You can get started today by going to Podcorn.com. It's like popcorn, but for podcasts, Podcorn.com. Launching today on our Tea Public store, which you can reach through yourbrainonfacts.com/slash/merch, is indisputably the single greatest piece of merch ever made by anyone, ever, of all time. It's a design based on one of the more memorable facts from the show: Sicilian casumarzu or maggot cheese. I promise, the cuteness of the shirt is inversely proportionate to the grossness of the cheese. I want to actually make a series of these, say maybe four, but I don't know what other facts to do. So I need you to tell me your favorite or most unforgettable fact that you've learned from Your Brain on Facts. Email me, moxy at yourbrainonfacts.com. If you do nothing else I ever say, please check out this t-shirt. With all the advances in scientific processes and thinking, we've surely moved past hunting specimens for display and study. Right? Right? Yeah, it's nice to think that. In 2015, Christopher Filardi of the American Museum of Natural History scoured the highlands of Guadalcanal in the Solomon Islands for a bird he's been searching for for two decades, the Mustached Kingfisher. Described by a single female specimen in the 1920s, two more females brought to collectors by local hunters in the early 50s, and only one glimpsed in the wild, he wrote. Scientists have never observed a male. Its voice and habits are poorly known. Given its history of eluding detection, realistic hopes of finding the bird were slim. But he did it. After setting nets across the forest, he and his team secured a male specimen with a magnificent all-blue back and a bright orange face, at which point his team collected it. Collected, in this case, means euthanized. While this wasn't trophy hunting, some outrage did ensue. The controversy led the Audubon Society, which had previously published a piece innocently titled Mustached Kingfisher Photographed for First Time, To add an editor's note for context, this story has been updated to clarify that the bird was euthanized and the specimen collected. A researcher on Filardi's team had added, told Audubon that they assessed the state of the population and the state of the habitat and concluded it was substantial and healthy enough that taking the specimen, the only male ever observed by science, would not affect the population's success. Villardi was also compelled to write an op-ed for the Audubon, Why I Collected a Mustached Kingfisher. I have watched whole populations of birds decline and disappear in the wake of poorly managed logging operations, and more recently, mining. On this trip, the real discovery was not finding an individual mustached kingfisher, but discovering that the world this species inhabits is still thriving in a rich and timeless way. Villardi stressed that, among Guadalcanal locals, the bird is known to be unremarkably common. He explained how he and his team made the decision, neither an easy decision nor one made in the spur of the moment, to collect the bird with reference to standard practice for field biologists. And he said that killing one kingfisher might help save them all. Human beings have not been good custodians of the earth and its creatures. Somebody had to say it. It's the critically endangered Sumatran elephant in the room. We're so bad at taking care of wild animals, we can't even take good care of their remains, as we saw with the dodo. We see this clearly again with the quagga. What's a quagga, you ask? As well, you might. But hold on, because I was just about to tell you. Imagine you're printing the stripes on a zebra with a brown base coat, and you're working from top to bottom. And you run out of toner about halfway through. Once thought to be their own separate species, scientists who perform DNA analysis on modern zebras and quagga remains now say that the quagga is actually a subspecies of the plains zebra. Even before you listened to this episode, you could have guessed what happened to the quagga humans, European humans in particular, the most invasive species of all. Large-scale hunting in South Africa in the 1800s exterminated many animals, and the quagga was no exception. They had value in their meat and hides, and people wanted to farm on the land where the quagga grazed or use that grazing for their own livestock. The last wild quagga was probably killed in the 1870s, about the same time the only photograph of a living quagga was taken of a mare at London Zoo. The last captive quagga died in an Amsterdam zoo in August of 1883. The species left the world with a few dozen preserved hides and about seven skeletons to remember them by. The Grant Museum of Zoology in London houses one of these skeletons, though they didn't actually know it. They had two zebras listed among their exhibits— In 1972, the world's foremost quagga expert came to check out the zebra skeletons, only to declare that one of them was, in fact, the world's rarest skeleton. Quite an upgrade. The other supposed zebra skeleton turned out to be a donkey. A significant demotion in zoological terms. The Grant Museum's quagga was not quite a complete skeleton, as it's missing its rear leg. The most likely story is that the leg was on loan to the Hunter Museum at the Royal College of Surgeons during World War II. This building was bombed during the Blitz, and part of their collection was destroyed, including, it's believed, the Quagga's leg. World War II is for London, like, me and my two house fires. If I can't find something I remember having a long time ago, I assume that's what happened to it. A group called the Quagga Project started by Cape Town University professor Eric Harley, is working to bring the quagga back from the dead. Harley hypothesizes that the genes which make the quagga a quagga, its own separate subspecies, would still be present in the DNA of zebra and could be manifested through selective breeding. So that's what they've been doing. With each new group of foals, the distinct coloring has become stronger and more defined. The progress of the project has in fact followed that prediction. And in fact, we have over the course of four to five generations seen a progressive reduction in striping, and lately an increase in the brown background color showing that our original idea was correct, says Harley. The project has not been without its critics. Some have called the project a stunt, saying all they've created is a slightly different-looking zebra, without taking into account the ecological adaptations or behavioral differences in the original quagga. Another project lead admits these animals might not be genetically the same, and there might have been other genetic characteristics and adaptations that we haven't taken into account. As a concession to the not-invalid attractions, these new quasi-quaggas are called Rue Quaggas, after Reinhold Rue, one of the project's originators. What we're saying is, you can try and do something, or you could just not. And I think us trying to do, trying to remedy something, is better than doing nothing at all. You gotta give him that much. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. But that wasn't all for the pygmy Tarsier. In August 2008, a research team found four pygmy tarsiers in Lor Lindu National Park in central Sulawesi. Hailed as a rediscovery, the species' status as extinct was officially expunged. Using mist nets, the researchers successfully captured two males and one female, and fitted each with a tracking collar to track their movements before releasing them. The fourth pygmy eluded capture, escaping into the forest so who knows how many there really are thanks to our guest quote readers for this week's episode mike burton from the genuine chit chat podcast steve appell from mancavepodcasting.com remember you can always find the source links and the script at your brain thanks for spending part of your day with me and stay safe